This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Dr. Simon Kiss is a professor of journalism and leadership with Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us on London Live to talk about this very topic right now. Dr. Kiss, how are things going today? Fine, thanks. Our world thanks is for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. Our world is a pretty interesting place in that anybody can be an expert. Anybody can kind of have their own TV show. Anybody can sound like an expert, share things that might be 10 years old. And we have to somehow sift through all this stuff and disseminate the good from the bad. When it comes to something like the new coronavirus that we have been hearing so much about, what sorts of things are you finding that wind up being complete misconceptions? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, uh, close to home, there's been a couple of uh, falsely reported cases of the coronavirus at uh, Ontario universities. I think uh, people are uh, using platforms to kind of demand fairly extreme um, measures to deal with it. People are sharing information, speculating about how bad uh, or uh, what what the magnitude of the threat that that the coronavirus virus presents. Um, so there's a lot of things um, that uh, people are sharing that can muddy the waters. Now, okay, let's kind of dig into a couple of those. The extreme measures that you would go to to either battle against it or protect yourself from it. What are you seeing circulate that people might be able to look at and say, oh, I, I remember hearing Dr. Kiss talk about that. Yeah, that's that's not real. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I see, you know, people kind of demand, say, that uh, kind of flights uh, from China uh, kind of be stopped, uh, immigration and trade um, from certain areas of the country be stopped. Uh, people demand kind of excessive quarantine measures uh, be implemented. Um because of of their uh, their fears. Yeah. And as we look at at kind of how this stuff spreads, what is it about seeing maybe a friend share this that might give it a little bit more credibility than maybe just seeing it somewhere else or or hearing somebody say it in a uh, on a street corner? Uh people tend to trust you know it's not so much um you know people tend to trust information uh from people that they know. And, uh, uh, you know, people also tend to trust information from what they see as experts. And the problem in a kind of a flat media landscape that we have is that exactly who is an expert, uh, it's not entirely clear. It's um, not that difficult to kind of create a, a, a media presence that makes you look like an expert with a reputable um, kind of background uh, when in fact you're not. Um, and uh, so both of those things, uh, you know, make it easy for people to fall prey to misinformation. We're talking with Dr. Simon Kiss, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Journalism with Wilfrid Laurier University. And we're looking at the new strain of the coronavirus that if you boil it down, it is under the umbrella of a SARS virus. It's COVID-19, if you want to now finally give it a name instead of just coronavirus. But we get all kinds of information that comes through our feeds that you look at and say, huh, I don't, I don't know about that. Sometimes the statistics can look really, really scary that way, can't they, Dr. Kiss? 
Yeah, they for sure they can. You know, you hear things like uh, over a thousand people have have died in China. Um, the problem is, you know, there's raw numbers, and then there's uh, numbers as a proportion, right? So all these things need to be put into perspective, um, and that's actually what experts are good at, and what we um, kind of lay people are less good at. Um, so, uh, you know, a thousand people have died in China. How many people have gotten it? How many people live in China? Um, how many people, uh, you know, perish uh, from the regular flu every year? All these things are ways that put, uh, you know, raw numbers into perspective. And uh, when they're put into perspective, we can kind of react uh, more thoughtfully, you know, but in the absence of that kind of perspective, we can overreact um uh, with sometimes negative consequences of their own. It's so easy to get lost in a world of headlines now where, you know, you read a headline as, as you're kind of scrolling through either a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or just kind of zooming through online and going through maybe some news sites and, and you read that headline and, and immediately your brain will kind of fill in the rest. Do we need to make more of a concerted effort to, instead of reading the headline and feeling we know the story, some people will comment right away just off a headline, but instead of just reading it, feeling we know it, to actually go in and read the words of the story? Yeah, I mean, think before you share is always good advice. Um, uh, and, um, you know, in general, you know, kind of the way our brains work is, you know, we have kind of two processes. We have the kind of the automatic knee-jerk process, and we have a more thoughtful and cerebral process. And sometimes we rely on and one and when we should be relying on the other. You know, when we buy a car, we rarely do it on a kind of a knee-jerk, uh, on a knee-jerk basis. We take some time, we uh, kick the tires, we compare our models, uh, and then we make our decision and sign on the bottom line. Um, and too often when we're reading and consuming media in the mediated landscape, we kind of we comment or we share or we retreat uh, using that knee-jerk system. And uh, so the advice to uh, think before you share is, is very good advice. Well, thank you for all of the advice that you have given to us today, Dr. Case. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for the invitation. We talked with Dr. Michael Curry from UBC Shortly after the coronavirus, that is COVID-19, became an outbreak story. And he looked at some of the misinformation. I want to take you back to this very quickly right now as we sum this up in about three minutes. Dr. Curry pointed to the numbers and stats that we see and made it a point for all of us to remember that those numbers probably aren't accurate. Initial reports, which are probably exaggerated, would suggest it has a fatality rate of 2 to 4%. The good news is most of the time these initial reports seem to over-report that number. If you can remember the swine flu from 2009, which we later call the H1N1 pandemic, initial report, 50% of people being infected were dying from it. We later found out it was well under 1%. The issue is we're only testing the sickest of the sick initially, which makes it look a lot worse than it really is. Ah, gotcha. That's interesting that that's where those numbers would come from. Yeah, so when you get sick with an upper respiratory infection, you know, most of us stay at home. You know, a small percentage of people see their doctor or go to an emergency department. 
and an even smaller percentage are the sort of people that actually end up getting tested. So the people who are getting tested, at least initially, are the people who are deathly ill, on life support, on ventilators. Those are the people we're testing initially. Now that we know more about it, we're testing more broadly, and we're going to capture the people that their symptoms aren't putting them on life support, but it's causing a runny nose, a sore throat, and a cough. Dr. Curry, we've kind of been getting some questions about things that I'd love to maybe go over if you have a second. One of them would be, if you order something online that comes from China, could it come with some sort of virus? And I think what the person is hinting at is, could it come with a coronavirus? It's not impossible, but I think the risk of that having been shipped across the ocean, probably being in either the hold of a ship or the cargo hold of an aircraft, the chance of the virus surviving such a long trip is is pretty minimal. Is it zero? I don't know if I can confidently say that, but I think wiping down a purchase that you get from China when you first open the package is probably more than sufficient to protect you. Okay, so that's good. In fact, we should expand on that. How long can a virus last outside a body if it's on a surface or on your hands or on your body? That's a great question, and the answer is we don't know. This virus wasn't known to science a month ago, and uh, I've looked for the answer to that question. I've been asked that question a lot, and we're just not familiar enough with that virus to know. So it does exist outside the body for some period of time. It's... um, It does have some resistance or resilience in the environment, but how long, we're not quite sure. We are talking right now with Dr. Michael Curry, clinical associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Maybe as a final question, when we look at other viruses, and you hinted at this earlier, like other flu strains, for someone like you, are they more concerning even than something like this in terms of what they can do and how serious they are to treat? Yeah, historically, historically, the flu has affected somewhere in the range of thirty to 40,000 people dying of it every year in the United States of the flu. Canadian numbers, I don't have those off the top of my head, but are roughly a tenth of that. But we are looking at several thousand people a year dying of the flu, and most of us aren't too panicked about the flu because, you know, millions of people get infected every year. So, you know, a couple of thousand deaths statistically is still a very low risk. You know, right now, coronavirus has, as of last report, had 123 deaths associated with it in China, a country much larger than Canada. So the effects of the flu, at least so far, on people on an annual basis seems to be something that's much greater than what we've seen in coronavirus, at least this far into its outbreak. We have had Global News reporter Mike Arsenault braving anything that winter is throwing at him. And although it's been a fairly mild winter, it hasn't been too bad. He has gone out and he's gone fat biking and he's gone ice climbing and he's gone cross-country skiing. And he was sent out this week to go snow kiting. At least that's when we all got to see him try snow kiting. Now, conditions have to be great in this, but we've got a chance to talk to Mike about snow kiting. Uh, Mike, you and your kite are back. What was that like? 
it was an experience. So snow kiting, what it is, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with kiteboarding, where you kind of uh, use the power of wind on open water, and you're able to kind of surf along the water, again, using the power of the wind with your kite. Where snow kiting comes in, obviously, it's a frozen body of water with snow on top. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, it is a great sport, but unfortunately, of all the activities we've done in this Fitness Serve Cold Series, it is really at the mercy of the weather because you need the perfect combination of snow, uh, temperature, and um, also wind speed. And finding that, how intricate a challenge is that? So we try to first organize this snow kiting experience at the beginning of the new year, and we film this um, at the end of January because it took a month to coordinate schedules and find, again, that perfect combination of uh, snow, wind, and temperature. And we had two of the three. The temperature was perfect. Um, the wind looked like it was going to be good, but uh, considering how mild this winter has been thus far, two days before, and we did this in Cooks Bay on Lake Simcoe because that's really kind of the, the best um, combination of the three at this time in the winter. You can do it across other portions of southern Ontario when you get, a nice, uh, get enough ice coverage. But when we the two days before, we had a system come in, and it was more rain than snow because it has been so mild so far this winter, and that kind of ruins the, the snow component of the snow kiting. And I'm going to be honest with you, it is a, a huge learning, ter- uh, learning curve to actually snow kite. And what the plan was, because this would be my first time, that I was going to do basically a tandem attempt with the instructor. And the wind was strong enough for one person, but not strong enough for two. And Andre from iKite.ca made the smart decision because if he just tried to, to let me do it, there's a good chance the kite could be damaged because if the wind kind of dies, it then falls on the ice and it can kind of rip there. So we were able, I was able to kite. I just wasn't able to kind of maneuver on the skis. But I don't know if, you, if you've ever um, kited before, Mike, but it is. it takes a lot of finesse to kind of maneuver the kite around the wind for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about doing something like this, this isn't, hey, kids, uh, grab the kites that we were flying in the summer and uh, bring one of those up here because I'm going to go snow kiting later today. That's not the kind of kite. How big is this kite? Generally, uh, for like a a power kite is what it's called, they're they're pretty much uh, ten to ten to twelve feet in diameter, so they are they're pretty uh, significant kites. Um, the training kite that I used to kind of maneuver through the wind was was much smaller. I think it was around five five to six feet. But it's amazing just the power you can feel of that wind when you get it into the sweet spot, which is called the power zone. You can really kind of feel how that uh, how the kite would actually pull you. But in terms of the learning curve, I mean, again, we had ice climbing last week. The learning curve would be steep definitely in uh, snow kiting because you need that kind of familiarity on skis. So you need to have your, uh, your ski equipment, your boots, a helmet and goggles for sure. And then you also have to use the kite. So especially if you're going out as a beginner, you're going to need to do a, a tandem process because there's so much to to know about how you're maneuvering the kite. I got that part, but then I, I couldn't imagine by myself on the first attempt then trying to use the wind and also think about where I'm traveling with the skis. But in advance, uh, so if you go to globalnews.ca and just search the fitness corner, we have great uh, footage of Andre, the instructor, snow kiting on his own in great condition, and he can do jumps and flips. It's really incredible to witness. Really? Jumps and fl- I just thought this was hang on and go. So there's actually some trick elements if you get good at this? Definitely. Like you can, if you can kind of catch the wind in a sweet spot, you can definitely get elevated. And it's theoretically, if the wind's strong enough, you could actually cross the entire lake just by snow kiting. So it definitely, it definitely lies on more of the extreme side of 
to winter sports options. So if, if you're just kind of coming off the couch and looking for a winter fitness activity, snow cutting is probably not going to be your first choice. <laughs> but it is, it's, again, it's, it's a great workout. It's a, it's a great way to spend time outdoors. And when you get that cold weather with all the snow and the strong winds, generally you don't want to be outside with that. But that snow cutting, of course, those are the per- perfect conditions for it. So it kind of forces you to even be out in the most inclement weather we can have in a Canadian winter. Mike Arsenault of Global News joining us as we talk about fit served cold and snow kiting. Mike, did you at least get the lesson as to if you were out there and if the wind is blowing and the conditions are perfect, you've got the temperature, you've got the snow, how do you stop? Well, you just, so it's actually, you're kind of self-breaking with the kite. So again, when you want to get moving, you're in the power zone, which is really the, the wind kind of straight in front of you. And then as your kite moves, you have to kind of react to the movements, which is subtle shifts in your left and right hand. You're not pulling on it, but you're just kind of tweaking a little bit. If you make um, too many uh, sudden movements, that's when the kite will kind of fall. And that's pretty much what you do. So if you want to stop, you just kind of would kind of jerk your arms a little bit, and then the kite would fall on its own. And that's why you want the snow cover on the body of uh, on the frozen body of water, because the kite will just far, fall harmlessly in the snow, as opposed to if it's just ice on there and there's some cracks and stuff, it could uh, do some damage to your kite. But it is it it is easy to stop. It's not like you're going to kind of get airborne and then you're going to start in Lake Simcoe and end up uh, who knows where in Ontario. <laughs> and it sounds like you want to take care of your kite. This sounds like an expensive kite to own. Yes, yeah. It's, it's definitely not a, a cheap venture. Um, obviously, you'll rent all the kiting equipment, but that's that's going to run you probably a, a couple hundred bucks plus the lesson, but it, will, it really will be kind of a full-day experience. But again, if you want to try snow kiting, there's a, a lot of places within southern Ontario you can do it. Just again, be forewarned that if you book it for, say, Mike, you and I are going to go next Thursday, well, that's not a guarantee because, again, you need that perfect combination of snow, temperature, and wind to do it properly. So obviously a nice breeze, nice little bit of powder snow would be good, but what does the temperature have to be? Well, temperature, you just, you just want to make sure you're um, below zero. And I was actually, impre- I was I was concerned we weren't even going to be able to do this at the end of January because of how mild the winter has been. But again, the smaller body of water, of course, will freeze a little bit quicker. So again, Cooks Bay on Lake, uh, Lake Simcoe, that had the perfect conditions for it. Can't really be done yet through portions of Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, because we just don't have um, that snow and, uh, and ice coverage just yet. But basically, if you have um, ice fishing huts on the body of water, it is uh, safe enough to try snow kiting. And that's actually what we did. So we saw some ice huts out there. So it's not just about uh, fitness for enjoying the winter, Mike. You can have uh, a couple drinks with some friends in an ice hut. That's another way you can enjoy the winter season. It just doesn't have to be about fitness. That's kind of uh, what I've also learned from the series. Great stuff. Mike, thanks for braving, well, the cold at times to bring us fitness served cold. But thanks for getting out there and trying all these things. Well, thanks for having me, and hopefully we can chat again soon, Mike. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.